Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that tallies the wins and losses of everyday history. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're talking about the rebirth of the Olympic Games. We're used to this world event taking place every two years, alternating between winter and summer games. But at the close of the 19th century, the Olympics hadn't been staged for over 1,500 years. Today, we'll explore how the tradition made its comeback and why it's now the most anticipated international sporting event in the entire world. The day was April 6, 1896. The opening ceremony of the first modern Olympic Games took place in Athens, Greece. It was held at the main venue for the Games, the newly restored Panathenaic Stadium, which was originally built in 330 BC. More than 60,000 spectators gathered there for the opening event, including the Greek royal family. Most of the competing athletes were present as well, lined up on the infield and grouped by nationality. After a few brief speeches, King George I of Greece declared the official opening of the first International Olympic Games. To cap off the celebration, nine bands and 150 choir singers performed a new Olympic hymn composed by Spiridon Samaris with lyrics by Greek poet Kostis Palamas. The song they played later became the official Olympic anthem in 1958 and has been played at the opening and closing ceremonies of every game since. You might not know it by heart, but you've probably heard it before. Take a listen. Thank you. 
Athens was chosen to host the first modern Olympics because Greece is where the ancient games began. The first recorded Olympics were held at Olympia in the Greek city-state of Elia in 776 BC. That said, most historians believe the games were already several centuries old by that point. Just like today, the ancient Olympics were held every four years. Back then, though, they corresponded with a religious festival honoring the Greek god Zeus. Another difference between the modern and ancient incarnations is that the Olympics used to be a strictly Greek affair. The ancient athletes represented as many as 100 cities spread across the Greek Empire, but foreign nations weren't invited to compete. The events on offer were also far more limited in those days. It was mostly foot races at first, but over the years other events were added, such as wrestling, boxing, jumping, horse and chariot racing, and discus and javelin throws. The Olympics continued to grow in scope until the Roman conquest of Greece. Under Roman rule, many aspects of Greek culture were suppressed or outright banned for being paganistic. The Olympics joined that list in 393 AD, when Roman Emperor Theodosius I formally abolished the games. The ancient tradition remained lost for the next 1500 years, but was finally revived in 1896, just in time for the 75th anniversary of Greek independence. Strangely enough, though, the person responsible for the game's rebirth in Athens wasn't a Greek citizen himself. Instead, he was a French aristocrat named Baron Pierre de Coubertin. In 1892, when he was just 29 years old, the Baron began campaigning for an international multi-sport competition, an Olympic Games for the modern age. Two years later, he presented his idea at an international sports conference in Paris. Thanks to his clear vision and persuasive speech, the Baron's proposal was unanimously approved by 79 delegates from nine different countries. Together, they formed the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, and began planning the first games. For both practical and symbolic reasons, the capital city of Greece was chosen to host the inaugural event, which was boldly scheduled to take place just two years later. After a whirlwind of preparation and planning, the Olympic Games were officially opened on April 6, 1896, and were set to last for the next 10 days. The exact number of participants and of the nations they represented is somewhat disputed, but it's generally agreed that about 240 athletes from 14 nations gathered that week in Athens. Most participants competed as individuals, and Hungary was actually the only country to send an official national team. Most of the other foreign athletes were wealthy college students or athletic club members, though there were also a few tourists who happened upon the games while in town and were allowed to sign up. The only apparent requirement was that all the competitors had to be men. And make no mistake, that rule was very much based in chauvinism. Before the games were underway, Baron Coubertin barred women from the event, believing their participation would be, quote, impractical, uninteresting, unesthetic, and incorrect. Thankfully, his view was not the prevailing one, and by the time of the second modern games, four years later, women were allowed to compete, and 22 of them did. As for the Athens games, the all-male participants competed in 43 events spread across nine sports. Track and field, swimming, gymnastics, cycling, wrestling, 
weightlifting, fencing, shooting, and tennis. All 12 of the track and field events were held at the Panathenaic Stadium, with Americans taking first place in nine of them. In terms of individual victories, the U.S. outperformed all other nations, but it was Greek athletes who won the most medals. Speaking of medals, there weren't any gold ones at the first modern Olympics. Instead, first place winners received a silver medal, along with an olive branch and a diploma. The runners-up each received a copper medal and a laurel branch, along with their diploma. And as for the third place winners, well, they went home with bragging rights, and nothing else. To be fair though, the IOC has retroactively awarded gold, silver, and bronze medals to the winners of the 1896 games. You know, for all the good that does them now. The first modern Olympic champion was American athlete James Connolly, who won the triple jump on April 6th, the opening day of competition. However, the most celebrated victor of the Athens Games was the Greek runner Spiridon Lewis. He won the event's first marathon competition, a race that followed the legendary 25-mile route that a Greek soldier ran from the plain of Marathon to Athens back in 490 BC. It seemed appropriate for a Greek athlete to win that event, so when Lewis did, the entire stadium and all the hills around it erupted in cheers. An American reporter named Charles Waldstein later described that triumphant moment, writing that all of Athens was, quote, covered with a human crowd that from a distance looked like bees clustering over a comb, this mass of humanity rising in one great shout of joy. The reaction to Lewis's dramatic win was an example of the spirit of internationalism that Coubertin and the other organizers hoped to inspire with their new version of the games. Not everyone there was Greek, but they all recognized and celebrated the importance and meaning of Lewis's win. The inaugural Olympics weren't a runaway success, and the event wouldn't be truly embraced for another three decades. But the moments of unity experienced at the first games convinced Coubertin that his efforts to revive the tradition would not be in vain. On the world at large, he wrote, the Olympic Games have, of course, exerted no influence as yet, but I am profoundly convinced that they will do so. Should the institution prosper, as I am persuaded, all civilized nations aiding, that it will, it may be a potent, if indirect, factor in securing universal peace. Nearly 130 years later, the idea of universal peace probably seems more far off now than it did then. But maybe that just means the Olympics are more important than ever. In times as divided as these, it's nice to have an event where people from all different regions and cultures can come together to celebrate what our species is capable of. Not in any political or military way, but in the friendly spirit of competition that the Olympics is all about. Will we finally achieve world peace next year when the Summer Games are held in Paris? Probably not, but here's hoping they're at least a long jump in the right direction. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to pass them along by writing to this day at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. 
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Thank you. 